talk about something that we've sung about today. If I was to ask you, what is the most important event in history, what would you say? Well, the resurrection. Why? Why is the resurrection the most important? Not, the, not D-Day, not the end of, or the beginning of a, a world war, or the end of a world war. Why the resurrection? And by the way, it wasn't the America's Cup. I saw you thinking about that, Desmond. <laughs> Why? Why is the resurrection the most important day in history ever? Why? Can I suggest to you, is it's because that one event changed our relationship with God forever. Every other event in the world is dated and references the relationship to the resurrection. Even people who don't believe in Jesus reference him every day. They reference his date of his birth and his death and his resurrection every day of their lives. Nothing else compares. Nothing See, the resurrection is important because it proved who Jesus actually was. He said, I am the Son of God. Very audacious claim. I am the only way to heaven. Ridiculously narrow claim. But I'm going to prove it. And in three days, I'm going to be risen back. I'm going to come back to life. Now think about this. If there was no resurrection, if it didn't happen... There is zero forgiveness of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin. And by the way, there is no purpose for living. If there's no God, there's no purpose for living at all. You're random. And those of you who are mathematicians know that there's no pattern or information in random. And there's no hope of heaven if that did not happen. So you're wasting your time. If there was no resurrection. Therefore, it is the most important event that ever happened on earth. Now, it's ironic to me, and I've been reflecting on this over the last few weeks, actually, that when Jesus Christ was arrested that night, all of his followers ran away like sissies. And for several days, they were panicking. They were disillusioned and depressed and deflated and blah. Just what? How did this, what? Just You think you're bad about the rugby, Desmond. They were shattered. Their hopes and dreams, gone burger. They were out of motivation, out of gas. Three days later, Jesus comes back and he meets with his disciples. Now what happens here, I want you to take a fresh look at and see how it catalyzes change. They move from cowards to men full of courage. Men who were once empty and depleted are now energized and driven Men who were discouraged and defeated are now determined more than ever. They're ready to take on the entire might of the Roman Empire. Huh? Spot the contrast going on here. They're full of confidence. 
They're not the same people that were there three days ago. What happened? What changed them is really, really important. Now, I'm just going to begin this new series, but I want to ask you a question. How many of you have driven around in your cars, and when the tank gets to about half empty, you swing by a gas station? Does anybody like that? Okay, no OCD people. (laughs) Okay. How many of you go, as far as the light comes on, you still keep going to see how far you can go? (laughs) Yeah, right. That's most of us here. You know, you think that E is enough to keep going, right? And F is for what? Far too much, right? So you never go to F. It's like my son, he thinks if he, put, if he fills it, he argues with me, he says, if I fill the tank up full with gas, Dad, I've got to pull that extra weight along. So I only do half, so I'm saving money. I'm going, whoa! <laughs> Today, I want to look at a very practical and to me, very life-giving uh, uh, message from the scriptures of how Jesus, when you're flat out of gas... You're depleted and deflated, hardly any forward motion, how he can re-energize us when we're running on empty. And if you're not today, you will be in some stage in the future. So I'd encourage you to take some notes. Let's pick up the story that Jesus um, uh, is recorded in John 20. He's talking to his followers. On the evening of that first day of the week, which was Sunday, big change there, because Okay, Sunday, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked. You know when you go, click. Some of you got three or four bolts. The doors are locked. Why? They were together with the doors locked for fear of the authorities. The cops are after you. And Jesus came and he stood among them. First words. First words. Haven't seen him. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands where he, where he had the nail prints and his side where the centurion had speared him when he was on the cross. And the disciples were overjoyed, full of joy. Joy is overflowing from them when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Second time. As my father has sent me, I am now sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit, which was a down payment for what was to come on Pentecost 50 days later. If you forgive sins, any one of his sins, they are forgiven. Now down to verse 29. Then Jesus tells Thomas, Because you have seen me and you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet they believe. Now Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. Now there's a stack of stuff that Jesus did which aren't recorded here. But these are written, the things that are written, are written that you may believe that what Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God, and and by believing in his name, you may have life in his name. Excuse me. Now, I don't know what kind of week you've had last week. I know there's a whole bunch of people not here this today. 
That's because they've had some very bad news. One of their dads has got lung cancer. I don't know what kind of year you've had, but if you've ever felt that you're running on empty and out of gas and thought, I don't know whether I can even go on. Some people feel that when somebody passes away. This year we remember with fond memories when our good friend Bill passed away. I know how that felt when my mum passed away. Some people at those stages feel like they're actually at the end of their rope. They're ready to throw in the towel. They want to just resign from the human race. And if you've ever felt fatigued or frustrated or fearful or just plain weary, I've got some good news for you. We're going to see seven things that Jesus did to his disciples. And he wants to do to you and I when we're fatigued and depressed and demotivated and sometimes demoralized. And we'll look at seven things that Jesus did to his disciples how he turned them from cowards into confident people and he wants to do the same thing in your life. The first thing Jesus does when he wants to refill your tank, the very first thing we're going to see from the story, when you're running on empty, is he meets you where you are. Where you are. The disciples were scared to death. They were hiding in a room that was locked. Now, when you're running on empty, Jesus doesn't often wait for you to come to him. He takes the initiative, and he comes to you. He comes to you. That's our God. He takes the initiative. He always is taking, whilst we're yet sinners, Christ died. He didn't wait till we get our act together. He takes the initiative. In fact, it says here in verse 19, it was late that Sunday evening. Now all the Asians are up and all the Kiwis are just about falling asleep because I found all my Asian friends got to be way later than me. They come around for 10 o'clock at night to have some supper. Do you want to have some to eat? It was late that Sunday evening. Look what the Bible says. The disciples were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid of the authorities. Then Jesus came and stood among them. Notice again, it was late in the evening. And they've already gone through the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion and the death and the burial of the leader a few days previous. They're emotionally spent. They're done. And they're up late. And it says they were hiding. Why? Probably because they were second guessing themselves. Were we wrong? What are we going to do now? We had high hopes. It looks like they're being smashed. And also, don't forget, they probably think that they're going to get us next. We're next on the chopping block. And it says they were behind locked doors because we were afraid. It's fear that locks us in. Fear that locked them in. But also, locks keep other people out. And I've wondered sometimes who you've locked out of your life because of fear. Maybe it's God. What would he want me to do? What would he want me to change? And therefore you've gone like this. Suddenly Jesus shows up among them. And they weren't expecting him at all. Clearly they left the door open. But they weren't. Clock, 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 clock. Now right now you may feel God is a million miles away from you. But he is closer than you think. He's here and he's near. And he wants to help you today. 
The second thing he does is this, is he gives you encouragement. Notice the very first thing Jesus says to these guys, which is unusual if you read it carefully. These guys who are defeated and demoralized and depressed and discouraged and running on empty, he says in verse 19, then Jesus says, peace be with you. He's basically saying, relax, guys. I've got this under control. I love this because what he didn't say, he didn't lambast me. He said, why did you guys leave me in my time of need? Why did you walk away apart from John? Why did you all skedaddle? I noticed that he didn't criticize them. Jesus never puts them down, but his first words are words of encouragement, peace be with you. Why did he do that? Because he understood their confusion. See, he's an all-knowing God. He, understood, he understands exactly how you feel. And he knew these guys were very confused. One of the things I've also noticed is that confusion is a hallmark of running low on gas. Friends, there's nothing you can't talk about to God. Unload yourself to him and receive encouragement from him. The Bible says this, do not worry about anything, but pray and ask God for everything you need, always giving thanks. If I ever had my time again, one thing I would do is I would worry less and trust my Heavenly Father more. And I think that's what these guys were learning. Because there are two alternatives in life. You're either going to pray, like this verse says, with giving thanks, or you're going to panic. And panic will grip your heart. And if you don't worship and focus on him, then you're going to worry. And I've noticed in my life, when I start to get my eyes on the circumstances and the tough stuff that's going on there, my peace in my heart goes. But if I worship the God who loves me, and what an awesome, amazing, and all-powerful God he is, my worry goes down. So I have a choice. I worship or I worry. I panic or I pray. That's my choice. But the scriptures are clear. Don't worry. That's a command. Do not do this. It is hazardous, deleterious to your health. And he says, I'm going to give you an opportunity. Don't worry about anything, but pray about anything. And if you do that, God's peace, which is so great that we cannot understand it, it will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus meets you where you are, number one. Number two, Jesus encourages you. Now, I have no doubt in this room today, some of you are feeling stressed. Stressed about your health. Stressed about your work. Stressed about your kids. Stressed about your finances. Stressed about the conflict that's going on right now in your life. Now, whatever's got you running low, why don't you just give it to God? In fact, I just want to just take a practical action moment. I just want to pray. Would you pray with me? You might just say to God, God, here it is. Whatever's stressing you out, you give it to him right now. Maybe it's your family. Maybe there's an individual in your family that's straightened your mind. Or something going on in your personal life. Just say, here it is, God. 
I need your encouragement right now. Would you give me your peace? Give me your comfort and your strength. Help me to know that, Lord, I don't have to face this alone anymore as I trust in you. Thank you for your love in Jesus' name. And everybody said? So when you're running on empty, the very first thing he does is he comes and he meets you on your territory, just like he did with the disciples in that room. He knew exactly where they were, and he showed up, boom. Then he encourages you. He doesn't put you down for your doubt. Did you hear that? Think about the disciples. Every one of them, bar John, skedaddled. He could have said that, but he didn't choose that because God is a God of love. Number three, he shows you his love. This is the third thing he does when, you, when you're running on empty. And that's what he did with his followers the very first Easter. The Bible says, and as he spoke, Jesus held out his hands to them to see. He said, hey, look at these nail prints in my hands where I was crucified. And then he showed them a sight. Look where I was stabbed and speared by the centurion whilst I was hanging on that cross. And they were filled with joy. Man, we thought you were gone, Jesus, when they saw the Lord. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, he's showing how much he loves you. He's saying, this is how much I love you. Do you know today that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you? So that your sins could be paid for. There is no other way in the universe by which your sins may be forgiven apart from the shed blood of Jesus. So when Jesus stretched out his arms on that cross, he's saying, this is how much I love you. I love you so much it hurts. I love you so much I'd rather die than live without you. He was showing his love. And by the way, let me be really clear. Young ladies hear this clearly. No one will ever love you more than Jesus. No man will ever love you more than Jesus. And young man, nobody else will ever be as faithful to you as Jesus Christ will be. The Bible says God showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So how does that help me when I'm feeling overwhelmed at the end of my rope? When I'm running on empty, I'll tell you how it helps, all right? When you feel really unconditionally loved by God, you start to relax. The reason why you overwork and push so hard and drive yourself till you're running on empty is you don't feel loved. You want the world to say, man, you're successful. Man, you've got it. You're worthwhile. You want the world to say, I'm lovable. I'm okay. But when you really feel totally loved by God, and most of you, you may have heard it, but do you feel it? that you know that God loves me, all of a sudden, you're not so concerned about what other people think about you. It goes like this. If God loves me, and I like me, what's your problems? In other words, I am no longer a slave to your expectations of me. Or you're, I'm not driven by the approval of others because I don't have to prove anything. And there's a lightness that comes and a peace in your heart. When you feel totally loved by God, it turns off the pressure valve in your life and you stop being a slave to the approval of other people. And this is what God says I want to do to you. 
I bring you my love to heal your heart. Number four, he offers you forgiveness. This is the fourth thing that Jesus did when he made his followers. After he came back to life on Easter Sunday, he offers you forgiveness. Now important, this is really important because forgiveness is an energizer, a huge energizer. Because two of the biggest energy drains in your life will be bitterness and resentment. Guilt and resentment. And the answer to both is forgiveness. Guilt and resentment are the twin emotions that rob you and me of energy. See, you cannot be guilty and happy at the same time. That doesn't work. You cannot be resentful and happy at the same time. Resentment will just chew away at you. See, when I hurt you, what I feel is guilt. Sometimes it may take a few days. <laughs> it may be immediate. But if I hurt you, eventually I feel guilty over that. When you hurt me, what's natural to feel? Resentment, right? Why'd you do that? That's what we say and we think. So guilt over the things that I've done wrong in the world and resentment over the things that I, I've been wronged over. Now, if you're ever going to be happy and content and have that peace in your life, you've got to learn to let those things go. You've got to let go of your guilt to God and how to let go of your resentment against other people. Two things. And there's only one way to do that, and that's forgiveness. Forgiveness, by the way, is a two-way street. Guilt and resentment keep you stuck in the past, and therefore you can't get on with the future. That's a problem. It'll zap your vision, your drive to go forward. Guilt and resentment warp your personality and you tend to become sarcastic and overly critical. You easily get angered and you become cynical and bitter. In a, in a, in a sentence, guilt and resentment ruin relationships. Now, I don't know about you, but we just got a new trash bin. Anybody get their new trash bin this week? Yeah, okay, those red ones. See, Every week, we take our trash out. If you don't, your kitchen starts to stink. Right? Ever come in? Especially, trouble is you get acclimated to it. If you're in the house, you don't even smell it because your nose has kind of got used to it. But if you go out for a while, you come back here, what's that smell? Because your nose has had some fresh air for a change. (laughs) You don't pull trash up in the corner. You don't pull trash up in your own life. You need to get rid of guilt and get rid of the grudges. So my question to you today in your life is who do you need to let go of today? Somebody that's hurt you. Who do you need to let off the hook and say, Jesus, what they did was wrong. It was wrong. But Father, I forgive them unilaterally because you've forgiven me and what they did is wrong you'll take care of that I'll leave that in your good hands and I know you never forget so I just trust you I'm not going to spend my life focused back there I want to move on I do not want to be stuck in the past forgiveness is a key to happiness. Notice this verse. Happy is a person whose sins are forgiven and whose wrongs are pardoned. Happy is a person who does not, who, who the Lord does not consider guilty anymore. 
You may want to circle forgiveness and happiness. Because of the cross, we've been completely forgiven. And we've accepted that forgiveness. That's a happy day. The next thing Jesus does is he fills you with his presence when you're running on empty. This is what we sung about today. Jesus said this, I didn't just leave you with the Bible. I'm off to heaven. Bye-bye. Enjoy your Bible studies. He didn't say that. He said, I, he came to put Christ in you, the hope of glory. He wants to be in you today. Verse 22 says, Then Jesus breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is with you moment by moment. Question, did you talk to him yesterday? Or do you only talk to have one, week, uh, one conversation a week with him? Because he's with you. He's with you when you're washing the dishes. He's with you when you're washing the car. He's with you in your car going to work. And I'll give you a clue. If you push the radio button off, you'll possibly hear him more. Because he doesn't shout. He whispers. God puts himself in you. What does it look like to be filled with the God's spirit? Well, a couple of things. Number one, number one, all you men and women who are single, listen to this carefully. Number one, it'll stop you being lonely. Because you realize that God is with me all the time. You may be alone, but he's with you. He's in you. And you can talk to him at any stage. Because God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then you start to, you notice like a tree. I had some all, um, of mm, lime trees waiting to produce fruit. And it takes time, but they start to grow limes. And in the same way in our lives, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I want those things in my life to grow and they come from having a life in God. Now notice this verse. The Bible says, The Spirit of God has given us, the Spirit that God has given us, does not make us timid and afraid. Instead, He fills us with power, love, and self-control. Now you may want to circle those three words, power, love, and self-control, because when you're running on empty, that's exactly the same three things that you need when you're in the gas. You need power to keep going. Power to drive you to keep going. You need love to build relationships. You need self-control to keep from self-destructing. And then he fills you with his presence. Number six, the sixth thing that Jesus does when you're running on empty, he gives you a new reason to live. A new reason. And this is important when you're running on empty, to lose a sense of what's all this about? What is life about? You see, because you were made for far more than money. You were made for meaning. And all the money in the world will not replace a lack of meaning. Many executives and managers wonder, if I'm so successful, how come I feel so empty? How come I always want more? See, they're not satisfied. The Bible says godliness with contentment is of great gain. The reason is, is because you are made for more than success. God made you for significance in his plan. Not in your plan, in his plan. Big difference. 
You were made for more than possessions. You were made to fulfill God's purposes. And sometimes it's easy to get off track and be going down our own roadmap rather than God's roadmap. All of these possessions will never compensate for a misalignment of purpose in your life. There'll be a gnawing sense of, this is crazy. This doesn't make a lot of sense. See, God's plan for your life is greater than anything you could ever think of yourself. Because he is the master architect of the universe. His intellect is way, way. So why not just get on with the boss's program? It'll test you. It'll stretch your faith. And it'll grow you in your faith. And that's what he did, Jesus did with these guys. Then he comes to them and says in verse 21, Again, Jesus says, peace be to you. The second time, as the Father sent me, I am now sending you. He already knew those guys blew it. You didn't stay with me when the tough times came on. But I've got a world-changing plan, and we're going to take on the world. And they did. And these 11 guys went out, and within 300 years, they'd overtaken the entire Roman Empire. And today, about 2.6 billion people are followers of Jesus Christ. It was the biggest task ever given to any group of people. Now let me ask you a very interesting question. What are you living for? What are you living for? The problem in East Auckland is that people have a lot to live on, but nothing to live for. What does God want me to do? Here's one of the things. This is from Eugene Peterson's message. Go out into the world uncorrupted like a breath of fresh air in a squalid and polluted society. He just says, be a breath of fresh air for people. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and the living of God. He said, I'm not expecting you to be perfect, but just give people a glimpse of what it means to live a good life for God. Carry the light-giving message into the night. Sam, into the university, into your workplace. Carry that message. You must shine, which means, whoa, you stand out from the darkness. Among them like stars lighting up the sky. There needs to be a clear difference of how you live, what you say, how you forgive that jerk at work and don't hold on to it and your love because people watch. Are you easily offended? Are you trigger happy? Do you have a, a hair figure, a hair figure, a hair trigger temper? People watch this. But carry the light giving message into the night where you're going. And our culture is getting darker and darker. All of you saw that last week, three men in Colombia were legally married. This is insanity. This is what the Bible talks about. In the end times, people will call wrong right and when you say what's right which is one man one woman they'll call that wrong and the time will come when this will be hate speech to say that what the true definition of marriage is between one man and one woman you wait there'll be all sorts of different polyamorous relationships coming where you'll have four 
And it's like mix, mix and match. Take what you want. This is crazy. Shine. God wants you to shine in the dark world. God says, I want you to shine like a star that represents me, which means represents my values, which means represent my interests of the kingdom as an ambassador of Christ. Seventh, the last thing Jesus did with his followers after the resurrection, and he wants you to do today, is this. He helps you to believe. He helps you. These guys are weak. In spite of all of your doubts, he helps you to believe. Now, one of those guys, Thomas, I love Thomas. He's an authentic guy. He's an evidentialist. And the Bible says this about Thomas. Now, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas, <laughs> in spite of the other ten telling him, and the woman on top of it, says, well, well unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hands into his side, I ain't going to believe. Because it, it was unbelievable that he could be alive. Now a week later, the disciples were in the house again. This time, Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. This is the third time, if you've been counting, he said this. By the way, how could Jesus do that? Because he had a new type of body, which is exactly the same type of body that you will get when you get to heaven. It has been reconstituted. This is the spiritual body, and it will be in the same likeness that you have now. It'll be your optimal self, which is great. <laughs> your optimal self. There's a whole doctrine on that, the same physicality of it. So, he said to Thomas, Hey, Thomas, come here, come here, come here, come here. Put your fingers in my hands. See my hands. Reach into your, your hand into my side. Somebody a bit squeamish on that one. Go ahead. It's okay. Touch me. And then he says this. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas, my Lord and my God. I love that story because first, Thomas is honest and open about his doubts. Family, grandparents, parents, create an environment in your home where your children can be honest about their doubts. Don't think they're going to hell in a handbasket. Allow them to express it because if they don't, they'll just start going quieter and quieter and quieter and they'll catch a virus which will take them out. It's better that you know what their doubts are. It might sharpen your focus on what you need to learn too to help them. Thomas is an honest seeker. And I want to say again, people have a bad and a wrong impression about doubts. Doubts can be good if they motivate them to investigate. Thomas wasn't these guys, well, I have a doubt about that, and you show him that, nah. and then you show about that, and you waffles on. No, he made a decision when he had his doubts answered. The second thing I love about Thomas is that he, when faced with reality, again, he's not stubbornly prideful. He doesn't, but he just says, my Lord and my God, he makes a decision given the evidence. Bang, bang. Just like Paul did. And I would encourage you to ask God to help you with your doubts or your children's doubts. 
or your grandchildren's doubts or your dad's doubts or your mum's doubts. And you, God, help me with my doubts. You know, so something like, Lord, if you are there and if you're listening to me today on the internet and you don't know that, ask him. God, help me with my doubts. If you are there, I want to know you. Good illustration of this is a guy one day came to Jesus. He's got a son who's demon-possessed, and the disciples couldn't do a thing. And, and, and the guy says, Jesus, if you can, please would you heal him? And Jesus goes to him, hold up, time out. If I can? If I can? Of course I can. He says, do you believe? And the guy goes, well, uh, uh, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. That man was a very honest man. Listen to what he said. Lord, I believe, but I still got some doubts. Help me in my unbelief. And that was good enough for Jesus. Boom, he heals him. Would you say that today? Some of you in this room. I want to believe Jesus helped me with my doubts. Let me summarize. If you're running on empty, Jesus wants to you. Today, the same things he did for the seven disciples after his resurrection. Why? Because number one, his disciples were afraid. So he comes to them, meets them where they are, where they're hiding. Second, the disciples are confused. What's going on? What's happening? We're disoriented. We're bamboozled. So he gives them a word of encouragement. Hang on, guys. Peace be with you. It's okay. I've got this. Three, the disciples feel abandoned. He's gone. He arrives and he says, this is how much I love you. Look at my hands. They're encouraged. Four, the disciples feel very ashamed for flaking out on Jesus at the critical moment. So he offers them forgiveness. And he does that for you. And he wants you to forgive others who've hurt you. Then the disciples are feeling alone. They're locked in the house. And Jesus says, you don't have to be alone anymore. I am going to put my spirit in you and you'll never, I will never leave you again. A man may leave you, a woman may separate from you, but I am never going to leave you. And then they're feeling useless. God couldn't use me after all I've gone through, after all I haven't done, what I should have done. And he says, in one sense, he says it this way, he says, you guys, stop, time out, get it together. I am going to work through you to change the world. And he gives them a new reason to live. He doesn't let them wallow in self-pity or apathy or laziness. And when they feel doubt finally, he says, let me help you believe. He doesn't put you down. The Bible says, be gentle with those whose faith is weak. So he's ready to do the same to you today. And Jesus' final verse in your outline said this, you believe because you've seen with your own eyes even better blessings are in store for those who believe without seeing. You know who he's talking about there? You. Let's pray. As we close this service, I'm just going to pray a prayer now, like I prayed 40 years ago. When I stepped across the line and I invited Jesus into my heart, and to forgive me for my sin. 
Why don't you just say in your mind right now, and God will hear you, it's the reason why God brought some of you here today to this service. Just say, me too, I pray this prayer. And if you're a Christian, don't put your mind in neutral. Just pray for people who don't know him yet and who are about to make a decision. Would you say, dear Jesus Christ, you know when I'm running on me empty. You know when I hurt in my heart. And you also know when I hurt others. Today I ask you to renew me spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Thank you for meeting me where I am. God, I need your peace in my heart to handle the stress in this world. Thank you for showing me your love by dying for me. And I ask you to forgive all of my sins and help me to let go of the people who have hurt me. I ask you to fill me with the presence of your Holy Spirit because, Lord, I need that power that your word says and the love and the self-control to grow in my life. Help me to discover your purpose for my life today. Help me to believe and to learn to trust you more each day. Father, even with some residual doubts today, I want to step across that line and begin a new relationship with you. I ask you to save me, forgive my sin, and renew my life. I pray this in your precious name. And everybody said, Amen.